DealQuest listeners and viewers, I am so excited to have Jay Alphadol coming on an upcoming uh, upcoming episode of DealQuest. Um, Jay, so uh, you have such deal experience um, in terms of what you do every day. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear about on your episode of DealQuest. Well, Corey, we're going to try to condense 25 years and 700 business transactions down into the kind of the key takeaways for the buyers and the sellers. Love it. And, uh, and you know, I know uh, we're going to talk probably a little bit about some trends going on and things we should be thinking about. And, uh, and, and I know you're also big on sort of some mindset stuff. So t- tell me a little bit about what, what you think we'll talk about there. Yeah, I mean, we, we're in some unique times right now with, with what's going around around us. And, and I think buyers and sellers need to be thinking a lot about that, whether, you know, if you own a business and you're thinking about your exit strategy or, or you're on the buy side, and you're thinking about the right time to buy. Uh, whether it's you know taxes or industry trends or multiples or risk factors and, and how to approach due diligence. I mean, I think we're going to hit a lot of neat topics that are important for anyone that's thinking about getting into business or currently in business to, to listen in on. Hey, folks, so definitely check out Jay's episode on DealQuest. Thanks, Corey. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. I'm excited to welcome Jay Offadal to the program. Um, Jay's father, Brad, was a serial entrepreneur growing up. Uh, and, uh, growing and selling three of his own businesses, Brad saw an opportunity to take his real-world knowledge to assist other closely held businesses with their exit strategy. After graduating from Appalachian State with a finance degree, Jay started working with his father at Viking Mergers and Acquisitions in 1996 and in 2015 bought out his father, continuing to grow the business, opening up additional offices. Today, they have nine offices and is the largest of its kind in the, south, uh, in the southeast. Uh, he is a recognized as a trusted top producing business intermediary in the Carolinas while helping lead and guide the Viking team with record growth. Um, he is also a fellow EO member and former um, uh, president of the, uh, or on the board and, and vice president, president of the Charlotte chapter. So he and I have that in common that we are um, uh, EO former presidents. Uh, and he's uh, also served as the chairman of the Department of um, Finance Board at Appalachian State for over 10 years, helping to give back to students as his alma mater, lives in South uh, Charlotte, and is happily married to Dina and have a, has a blended family with five children. Jay, welcome to the program. So happy to have you. <laughs> Thank you, Corey, for the introduction. I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, it's, um, listen, we're going to get into some of the history in the background. And, uh, Definitely. You know, it's, uh, it, you know, it's interesting because even, you know, there are so many deals, obviously, that you do for clients. Uh, buying out your father's a deal, right? You know? Right. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and, and so, so we'll, we'll get to all that. But I want to actually take you back, even before this history of, you know, in the 90s uh, coming into this business, when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old, um, what did you want to be? Because my guess is, you know, an M&A banker, investment, you know, banker, broker was probably not it, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, 100 percent. My dad was actually corporate America selling, you know, excavator, excavators and large earth moving equipment. And, you know, I think a lot of kids when they're growing up just want to do what their parents do. And so I, when my dad, my dad did that, I want to do that. When he bought his first business, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do that. And then second and third and then. He literally sold the third one when I was a senior at Appalachian State. And I was like, well, what am I going to do now? Right? Like, you got to get a job, right? And so um, I did. I did job interviewing and, and was figuring out if I was going to go the corporate route. And then he came and said, listen, I'm going to start this 
business brokerage industry. If you want to start with me from scratch, we'll be partners and, and see what happens. And so I felt like it was an opportunity that not a lot of people get. Sure. Um, and there's good and bad of that, Corey. If you think about a lot of the friends you know that kind of went the corporate route before they got into business, they were used to managing people, divisions, balance sheets, profit and loss statements. Uh, going straight out of college into entrepreneurship, you, you only know what you're exposed to. And it, it, it became a uh, something that, when, in hindsight, I would never change it. But I realized when I bought my dad out and I was trying to learn how to work on a business instead of in a business, that everything was uncharted territory. So, again, yeah. I wouldn't change it for, for anything. But it, it uh, sometimes, as you know, people look from the outside, it looks a lot more glamorous than it was. There's a lot of challenges that, and hardship that you go through as you start to, to grow and, and, and scale a business. No, 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 no question about it. You know, and I'm sure that uh, that experience helps you uh, have uh, an understanding and empathy for the clients you work with as they've, as they've scaled something to the point where they're looking to exit. You know, uh, one, one more question looking back. Um, and that is, what was your first deal of any type? It could have been when you were a kid, all the way, you know, whatever comes to mind. Uh, well, that's a good question. That the first deal I did in this business was a um, a kiosk candy store in a, in a, a mall that's no longer there anymore, out, out downtown uh, Charlotte. And yeah, I remember it distinctly as one hundred and ten thousand dollars, and I think we had a, like an eleven thousand dollar commission, and, and I thought right. I hit pay dirt right. I'm twenty twenty two years old, and first deal, and I'm like, you know, this is this is great, and uh, it's it's you know, it's obviously humbling to think back of where we started, and it's still humbling with what we do because the transactions are still challenging. They're obviously got some extra zeros at the end now uh, from back then, but. Uh, it, it was, I look back at a fond memory. I mean, learning the, a business in the trenches, right? There's no substitution for time on the job. And that's how I tell people, like, I, I learned that from school of hard knocks. I learned from my yeah. father a, a lot, you know, a lot what to do. And also, you know, some things that he did, I, I didn't like. I had to learn things like what I don't want to duplicate or emulate or, or mirror from, from what, you know, his management style and his uh, uh, approach. Very um, high integrity always. Uh, but he is, you know, he's a lot of like the typical type A boomer uh, that they're, you know, they're very direct. <laughs> and, and, I, and I sugarcoat things a little bit more than my dad. <laughs> a little more diplomacy, huh? <laughs> right, exactly. Try to be, try to, yes. Um, you know, it's, um, it's, you know, essentially we talked a little bit about um, what, um, you know, in the bio and things like that generally, but you said a few more zeros, right? You know, from that first deal. So talk a little bit about, I mean, you know, we, we know that there's a concentration in the Southeast in terms of geography. Um, you know, you have the nine offices you've grown. Um, what size deals are you doing or any particular industries that you focus in? You know, give yeah, us a lens. Yeah, we've been very intentional about the space we serve. Uh, even though we've got the firepower and caliber, you know, you know, three CPAs, two attorneys, 20 prior business owners, a uh, handful of, of people that went through the private equity group and managed deals for them. And, and we really could go farther or further up, <laughs> upstream, but we've been very intentional and still want to deal with the, what we define as the closely held business. So we, we really like industries that are service manufacturing distribution and technology. We really like the, the ones that don't have, you know, 10 or more shareholders. And the reason we open up these additional locations is we realized, especially when you start getting into the, the really big deals which took, for me is you know talking about hundred million dollar transactions, which we stay away from. Um, it's, it's like a transaction. It's like monopoly money and it's a transaction and it just doesn't feel the same. And, and we like that relationship. We want to be able to see our clients, the sellers, we're mainly sell side representation. So if they were outside of a two hour radius, unless it's just an industry that we've really done well in, um, I don't want to be on a plane unless I'm doing it for fun. And so I don't expect my advisors to be on a plane unless they're going on a plane for fun. And so that next level is a, you know, Sunday through Thursday, hundred thousand plus miles a year. And I don't, you know, live to work. I want to work to live and I want the people that are, are part of Viking to do the same. And so we've been very intentional about staying and bringing really that, that investment banker professionalism down to the, the closely held business. And, and I think, you know, 
jury's out. I, I think it's working well. It's, it's, you, well. Know, you, you never, you know, you never have it figured out, right? You always, right, right. Our right. deals, like I said before, it's very humbling because and people hear me say all the time, we're only as good as our last deal. We're not guaranteed our next. So right. just, despite no the fact that residual subscription based model yeah. here, this is a yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> if I see if I see a seller every 10 years, that's a repeat client. <laughs> well, that's right. that's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, you want to talk about the, one of the ultimate transactional, not, not only are you helping people with transactions, but your business is transactional, that's right. um, you know, and, and not, not your mentality. I know because I know right. how you deal with the clients, but you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, people, you know, there aren't that many, especially on sell side, right. That, you know, I mean, you do have serial acquirers, right? And on the buy side, there are some folks in the industry who have, you know, have regular deals from a, from a from a acquisition company or a regular buyer. But I, you know, but on sell side, yeah, how many companies do, does anybody sell in a given lifetime? You know, right. two, three, most. Right. You know, yeah. most and most people, right. most often one, right? Yes. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, all right. So, in terms of deal size, so it's you know, it's in the tens of millions, but not hundreds. We'll, uh, we'll go. We'll go. At the high end, you know. Uh, a million dollar, two million dollars. There's, there's, there's a lot of more of those, obviously, than the, than the 10, 20, 30, yeah. 40, 50. Um, and, and, but they're, they're far and few between. Again, if, if it's not a call, well, so we'll meet with seven business owners for every one that everything matches up. And we're, we're not saying no to six of them, right? It's, it's timing, it's expectations on price, it's are they ready? I mean, a lot of business owners, uh, and I tell people all the time, like, if I ask a question, I'm not being a smart aleck, I say, you know, why do you start a business? And they always like, you know, they go, well, because I want to be my own buyer. Like, no, no, you start a business to sell it. I mean, that, that that's it. I mean, you, you, yes, you want to control your own destiny. Yes, it's financial independence. Yes, it's all these things. But at the end of the day, um, I try to teach people and talk to people about, I've seen 600, maybe even now 700, I think 700 plus transactions over the last 25 years. And and the, the, the common theme of people that have done well is knowing that there is an invisible ceiling that they will hit somewhere between year seven and 10, unless they bring other people around them, they're smart, they help break through that invisible ceiling. But they yeah. really need to think about when's the right time to turn equity into cash in their pocket. And, and not, you can't time it. It's kind of, like, kind of like the stock market, but you just have to have this feel like, you know what? It's ready. And I've left something on the table for the next person, right? Because the next person wants to be able to grow it also. So, you know, the first thing I tell buyers is, you know, you're not going to find a the good news is that ongoing business, you're not going to find a perfect business. But if you did find a perfect business, don't buy it. Right. We bring the table, you're going to just mess it up, right? So <laughs> find that business is making some really good money. And you look at the owners like this is doing well in spite of the owner, right? And so, but the seller's mentality needs to be more of, you know, a lot of times the buyer's like, well, I'm going to buy this business and I want to bring my kids into it. And I'm going to give it to them. I'm like, whoa, no, no, no. Did you buy your kids a sports car when they turned 16? No, because you knew they had to practice on something less powerful. Don't hand the keys over to a business that you started out of your garage in the trenches. And then your son or daughter comes in and they expect to be middle management, right? My joke about nepotism, right? It's we promote, promote family values almost as much as we promote family members. Like you can't do that. <laughs> You've got to look at this business as a separate entity. You need to solidify yep. your own retirement first. And then if you want to start a business with your son and daughter or buy them a son, business son and daughter, take a percentage of those proceeds, right? If you sell a business for $10 million, you're, you're done. You're good. And hopefully, you know, depending on your lifestyle. And then maybe take half a million of that or, or a million of that, or even a couple hundred thousand and use that as a down payment for a much smaller business that you can coach them up and teach them up. But I really seen a lot and the statistics are against second, third generations for the most part have a higher probability of not continuing the success about 20, 25% decline per yeah. generation. Right. You hear the success just, stories, but there's so many against those. Yeah. Yeah, the stats on third generation are ridiculously bad. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, the, you know, I think the exception to what you're saying in second generation, and I, and I do think, you know, people even on second generation should be thinking hard about what the best route is for them and for their kids. You know, but but sometimes, you know, you have, a, you know, a child who's, who's been in the business for a long time working right under, you know, the founder. And listen. You know, you started, you're a little different than that you started your business with your dad, but, but, you know, but obviously he had experience selling other businesses and you came in. But I still um, bought them out, right? That's the other yeah. thing. If you're going to do that, don't give yeah. it to them. That's they right. Buy buy it. That's I, had right. To go, like, I still got a second on my house and a second yep. on my investment properties and a personal yep. guarantee, my wife's personal guarantee. I mean, 
I, if I don't make it, my dad has his money. <laughs> right. So it's an added incentive to get up and go to work every day because I didn't walk into this debt free. And it's still actually, you know, six years later, I still got a pretty good amount of debt on that. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing that keeps you motivated, right? I'm still working because I have to, not because I want to. hundred uh, percent. I think, and I think that's a great distinction and sort of where I, where I was heading, right? You know, you can have, right. And, and by the way, I mean, and this applies and people have heard me say this to employees as well. I'm a big believer in, and I always say almost never because I can come up with a scenario or two where I'd make an exception. But, you, you know, I should almost never give employees equity. First of all, you know, if you really want them to think like owners, well, part of being an owner is taking on some risk, right? You know, like nobody nobody starts a company without risk. And when you, when you significantly de-risk the investment by the time employees are buying in, if they're not up for, you know, putting some skin in the game, you know, I got a problem. The, 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 you know, the only exception I'll make sometimes is occasionally you run into a situation where uh, somebody's had a real long-term employee has been very underpaid because, you know, and now you say, okay, I want to, in honor of all of that extra work you put in that I didn't pay you for, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm to give you some equity. Most cases, though, you know, when people say to me, when entrepreneurs, business owners say to me, well, you know, they've been with me 15 years, 20 years, whatever. They've done a great job. I'm, my first question is, well, did you pay them well? And most often they say, yeah. I'm like, okay. That's why they're there. Then they've been paid well. They'll let them use some of that money to buy in for equity, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, but but it's a similar conversation. And, and um, you know, the, you know, so it's, it's funny because it makes me think of two things, um, you know, w- w- uh, in terms of what you were saying. One is that, um, you know, I, on on this point, on the uh, on the employer side, I always I talk to entrepreneurs all the time uh, because some of us have our unrealistic expectation that our employees are going to be as dedicated as as us, and we get right. uh, upset when they're not. And I always send them they don't own the damn company, right? It's not their company. You got to take that into account. I hold a very high standard for my employees, and they do great. But it's different, right? But also, um, you know, going back to the deal side. Um, you know, you talked about the fact that, um, you know, unrealistic expectations on price, right? You talked about that, that that's a, a challenge sometimes. Um, and you also talked about leaving sort of some upside for the for the buyer, right? right. And, you know, a, a counter, uh, you know, so the other half of that, and I talked about this all the time, I love to hear your experience, is sometimes sellers get upset when a buyer points out those gaps, because sometimes they're doing it to try to, you know, negotiate purchase price, right. right? They say, you know, your your branding's outdated, your technology's up to date, your space needs updating, whatever it is, right? Um, but there's a different way to relate to that as a seller, right? Like right. that's the buyer. The buyer's going through a process to try to figure out where they think they can make improvements. Right. And if they don't think they have that upside, they're not going to buy your company. So it's, you know, I try to get my clients to recontextualize that, not get, because the ego comes into play, right? Sometimes they get upset, you know, uh, well, the, the, the buyer, the buyer pays for what the seller has accomplished. They buy it for the opportunity that they can realize, but they yes. don't want to pay for that opportunity that they got to, you know, That's right. realize. So it's, it's one of those things also that most business owners don't run their business to maximize shareholder wealth, which is the goal of a public company. And that's often a lot of times where we start with kind of a seller's kind of a, a pre-sale checklist right here are the things that you've just got to get into order before you can ever consider about going to market because when you do go to market it does become emotional especially for our closely held business owners that started this from their garage and grew it and now that's it's it's part of their either the business family with their employees and their business is like a baby to them yeah and so the reality is they're not thinking about how a lender or a buyer is going to look at their business, right? They're just putting out fires every day. They got their blinders on. We try to open their eyes to just some basic things about, you know, inventory, furniture, fixtures, and equipment, your organizational chart, job descriptions, uh, financial statements. I mean, just the basics of understanding your balance sheet and profit loss statement and trying to, you know, instead of trying to figure out how in the end of November, you can cut your profit in half in 30 days by the end of December, figure out, how you can keep that accounting practices consistent from month to month, quarter to quarter, P&L to tax return, so that it's easy for a buyer, if they're going to hire a third party, you know, CPA firm to do a quality of earnings, that everything ties in nicely 
You've got all your vendors, all your contracts are assignable. I mean, I can go on and on. I can do an hour just on that, Corey. But I mean, the reality is, is people don't think about their exit strategy. We know statistically it's a very small percentage of people that ever think about, hey, this is, you know, what I'm doing. I'm set, I bought this business or I started this business to set up and sell it. And for them to very intentionally look at figuring out two, three years beforehand, hey, I want to exit on my timing and my terms. And I want, don't want them to be dictated to me when some life event happens, right? right. I'm burned out. There's a, a scare or a death in, in health and, and of the, those things I don't even like talking about. But right. life happens. It happens quickly sometimes. And those are the ones that aren't prepared and they don't get to dictate the terms. They're dictated to them. Well, that's right. That's a great point. And listen, there are certain things that you can rush to clean up. Uh, and then there are certain things that, you know, if you know, you can't suddenly have consistent financial statements. So, with, you know, for the last three years, you know, right. in a month, right? right? You know, you might be able to, you know, find all of your contracts that you, that you didn't file well and go back to clients and get them, you know, to, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, you can scramble on some stuff, but you can't scramble on other stuff. And, um, you know, so, you know, what you're raising is something that we do a lot on the legal side and any good broker or banker is going to help out, accountants are going to help out you know, to put these clients through what, what I often call a pre-due diligence process. Like we right. all know what a buyer, what a buyer is going to be looking for. And you want to put them through a pre-due diligence process to make sure they're ready, they're set up, and also to find any of the issues, skeletons before, <laughs> you know, you don't want the buyer to be the one to find those. And, and it lightens the load so that, because even, even if they do all that preliminary, the, the, the due diligence time period is still feels to a lot of sellers and business owners like a second job. Yeah. And, and so just kind of preparing them so it's just not overwhelming. And then when they get a three page single type due diligence checklist that goes through not just the financial, but the human resources and legal and the organizations and the vendors and the customers. And I mean, and just on and on and on. It's like, how could they require this kind of stuff? And it's like, yeah, that's that's just part of it. You know, due diligence is the opportunity for a buyer, whether that's an individual, whether it's a private equity group, whether it's a strategic or a family office, it's an opportunity for them to assess risk. Yeah. And so they're going through there and they're piling through things and say, okay, what's the probability of the past historic financial performance continuing in the future, right? And the inverse of risk is the multiple. And so, you know, first question I always people say is like, hey, what is this trading for? I'm like, well, you know, Four to 14 times. Like, what do you right. mean? Like, yeah, this, it could be a huge range. I mean, there's so many intangibles when you're talking about what a business is worth. Now, if you get into a certain section or, or a category or NACS, I can kind of narrow that down. But there, it's, I mean, it's all over, right? I mean, there's just a, a right. wide range. Even the same industry have wide ranges of multiple because of the different ways the business is structured. Are they residential or commercial? Are they business to business or are they? business to consumer or are their margins higher than, I mean, right. there's 25 they, things that they, go into the Do they have a high concentration risk in a few clients? Do they? Better you know, concentration. They, People forget you know, about in, that, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, you know, in, in the wealth management industry, where I do a bunch of stuff, age of clients matter because you're right. talking about people with money and the older folks are dissipating assets, not gaining assets, you know, so it, it's industry specific. It's, it's company specific. It's all that stuff. Yeah. 100%. How transferable is, is the knowledge in the owner's head? Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to CoreyCupfer.com slash assessment. That's CoreyCupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. And Corey, I gotta I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up. If if business owners go to seminars, the first thing, not the first thing, but one of the main things people preach, like you've got to get a management team in place where you know you work yourself out of job and they're running the company. Well, as you know, as an EO member, uh, this stat is all over EO. To qualify for EO, you've got to do over a million dollars a year in sales, right? Yep. And we know that less than ten percent. Of all the businesses, I think there's like 30 million businesses in the United States. Less than 10% of those qualify to be an EO, right? Yeah. So that's just a million dollars. You can't afford a board of directors if you're doing top line a million dollars. You might not be able to afford a board of directors if your bottom line is a million dollars. So <laughs> right. you're talking about a very small percentage. So I always tell people a couple of things. It took me 18 years 
to first, you know, to first start working on my business, right? And now I'm six years into it and it's still a challenge. It's harder to work on it than it was to just do deals in the trenches. Uh, but the second thing is the, 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 the probability of you scaling your business to where it's worth tens of millions of dollars and be able to sell for that high multiple to a private equity group is there's a very small percentage. My best guess is there's maybe 6 million of the 30 million that have any sort of like structure where it's not a single shingle. And of the 6 million, you're talking about probably just hundreds of thousands that really have that eight figure value. So rest okay. of those business owners, there's nothing wrong with having a two, three, four, five million dollars. It's a great lifestyle. It's a great business, but you still need to know when the right time is to hand it to somebody else and maybe take some time off and you do it again. That's what my dad did. He did it two or three times, three or three times, four times with me. And I've seen that work for people seven to 10 years into it, figure out what's your next, you know, what's your exit strategy. That's right. And then, and then, you know, you're probably much more likely, right. Not to be selling unless, unless you happen to, but I've seen businesses that side, you know, get lucky in that they're in the industry with some roll up comes along. Right. And they, and they right. do get, you know, we, and I, there's some of the old members I've represented that had that benefit and got nice multiples. But for the most part, you know, if you're not, you know, like you said, the farm general's business is not going to be PE kind of buyers. So you can have a strategic buyer, or you're going to have an operator, right? Whether it's an existing strategic buyer that's in the space or related to the space or whatever, you know, or you're going to have somebody who's going to come in and be an owner operator like you, those are the most likely buyers for those types of businesses, right? There is now the private equity is coming down uh, into the single yeah. digits and, you know, because yeah, there's the so much money out there. And, and, and that's an option for some people. You got an attractive industry and you're, and you're at the point where you're like, okay, I want to take a little bit of this equity. So I'm a paper millionaire, right? On a piece of paper, I'm worth, you know, $10 million. And, and the person says, but eight of that's tied up in the value of my business. Right. There is opportunities for people to, to, you know, sell off and recapitalize where they sell off, you know, 75%, retain some of it. And then, the freeing part for the business owner is now they're growing on someone else's dime. Their retirement right. is solidified. They can invest that stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and, and that's totally separate. And they're still paid to do what they do, but the load is probably lessened because there's a bigger back office taking over some of the administrative stuff that the business owner hated doing anyways. And so now I've seen that even more and more below the $10 million mark, where there's an opportunity for people to stay involved with the business, take some chips off the table, and then growing someone else's dime. And, and again, you've heard it many times that, that second bite of the apple. I know it's cliche, but it, yeah. it, people register. It makes sense. Like, oh, yeah, I, I, I take, no, no, take chips off the table yeah. and get a second bite of the apple. Yeah. In five years now, my 25% may be worth what my 75% was worth That's when right. I sold it originally. That's so right. there, there's right. those, I mean, it's case for case, and people have to know they're uh, going back to if you are ahead of the curve and you figure out some basic things about your business and timing, you get to have a lot more options than when you're kind of forced in the corner and say, I've got to get this sold because of this happened. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. And, and, and that's, that is an interesting trend. I mean, on how um, different financing options, private equity, you know, minority invest in, in certain uh, spaces have really come into the market. I mean, we talk about that, you know, I, it's interesting in the last probably, I don't know, maybe only 10 episodes I've had, two other folks who are investment bankers, brokers in different aspects. Right. And, you know, one of the things we, you know, that I would say on the show is that we actually don't only talk about M and A and investment bankers or whatever. We have all kinds of deals, you know, licensing, strategic lines, joint ventures, whatever. But I happen to have, you know, a, a few recently and it's, I think it's actually good because I, I love people to go back because they don't compete with each other. They're in different geographies, different industries, different, whatever. And it's interesting to hear from the different folks, whether it was, I, I had Liz Nesvold, back on episode 127, um, you know, which is so a few months ago, who is one of the top uh, investment bankers in the wealth management, asset management, and fintech, you know, space. Um, So that's a very specific area. And, you know, she talked about the trend she's seeing. One of the things we're seeing in that space is very similar to what Jay just said, where um, investment money, private equity money, whatever is going downstream, right? It's amazing how many financing options they are for external deals, for internal succession, for acquiring, you know, books of business in that space that weren't available, I mean, pretty much at all, almost 10 years ago. Well, um, there, there's more deal flow, Corey, and they're lower multiples, right? So they can take, you know, they can buy three or four $8 million companies at a lower multiple. And once they kind of hit that next level of buyer, the multiple goes up and they combine the cash flows and they create some economies of scale. And all of a sudden, you know, that's why private equity, yeah. they all look like geniuses. They only, you know, they, they don't all hit home runs every time, but when they do it like that really is impressive. 
Well, that's right. And the arbitrage factor on the multiple is a lot, you know, is, is higher, even if they're paying, you know, a higher multiple than traditionally that size business would get. Once they combine, you know, uh, it together, they get the arbitrage and the multiple. Um, you know, we talked about this also a little bit with uh, uh, Jessica Fiakovic, who's also a member of president of you know, Colorado, who has a franchise business broker, uh, you know, out there. And again, focuses yeah. in that geography. Um, and uh, so, you know, it'll be interesting listeners and, and viewers to go back and, and listen to all three of these episodes, because it'll give you, you know, different industries, different geographies, different whatever, but you're going to see some trends. Different opinions. Different opinions. <laughs> Um, but you're going to see some trends on what's going on out there and what's common, whether it's at, you know, higher end, the lower end, you know, the, out in the Midwest, on the East Coast, whatever, um, is a lot of money out there, a lot of money out there and and a huge amount of deal flow out there. Yes. Um, so that's you know, this market right now. Right. Because interest rates are low. Money is, is abundant. Lenders are fighting over over deals. I mean, if you if, if, especially you know, even in the ten million dollar and below. You know, the SBA lenders right now, you know, there's, there's if, if a strategic buyer buys a similar business, some of these lenders will go at, at zero down and provide working capital. So they'll buy a multi-million dollar business and get money back at closing. I was like, how's that make sense? <laughs> to me, it doesn't. To me, to, on a side note, I, I don't think it's kind of like the housing thing. Like getting in with zero and now you, you owe three and a half million dollars on a business that's worth of three million I just, but you know, they're personally guaranteeing it and they're, they're corporate guarantee it with their existing business and they're, you know, and the bank has to take on secondary collateral from the buyer. So, I mean, they're, they're putting their you know, money where their mouth is, but it's just a, it's an awesome opportunity right now for a lot of sellers, especially because it is a, a seller's market to, to capitalize. And that, that may change at the end of the year, right? We don't need to get into to that right now, but the politics okay. are out there. Capital gains we're, and we're in the middle all of that stuff. Yep. Yep. There's long term yep. capital gains tax. It's a scary thought process. People need to be aware and, and look at their options and, the reality is, is we're never going to, I don't think we'll see them go down anytime in the, in the future. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it's, and what they're, I'm hearing is a lot of people saying is they think it's only going to go up about 5%. And that's really only on, on things in excess of a million dollars. So does it hurt if, you know, you pay, if you have a $10 million company and you pay an extra $450,000 in taxes, federal taxes? Absolutely. That, that's, a, that's a, that's a kick. But it's a heck of a lot better than if it went to thirty nine point six and and you had, you had another you know two million dollars of, of additional taxes. That no. that's not fair. <laughs> no, no, no question. And here's something interesting. I did I did a couple of solo casts on you know on the podcast here on, on the capital gains, you know, risk capital gains going up. And here's the interesting part because listen, trust me. I, I do not want capital gains to go up to 39.6 personally. Uh, you know, I think there's a value deal flow. Maybe there's some room in between. But here's the interesting part. What I didn't, what I want to make sure, and I, you can go back and listen, and listen to those episodes, is that people don't, you have to understand, even if capital gains went up 39.6%, we've been there before. And there was a time when the capital gains risk was at that and deal flow was huge, right? And the reason right. is, because we capital gains is a factor. It's a, it's a you know it's a material factor, but you have to keep in mind it's only one factor. There's all kinds of other factors in terms of how well the economy is doing, your your sector is doing, you know who's who's in there looking to buy and consolidate, whatever it is. So yeah, so so you know I'm not denying that it's not a material uh, factor, and that you know, but but you know to. I think it's very, it's, it, it show, it, it's, there's not a significant understanding of the market and history. If you think just because capital gains, it guarantees that deal flow is going to totally disappear. That's not the case. You know, that's a good point. That's good. I, I yeah. think, Corey, that when things are significant, people pause to absorb them. So whether yes. that's three months yes. or three years, there's going to be a little bit of like, hold on a second. Let me just, let me process this. See what this really means to me. Cause before, if I sold at $10 million and I was going to net, you know, seven, uh, you know, roughly, um, I knew I could retire on that. Now I'm, I'm netting five. Uh, that, that, that's a, maybe I need to work a couple more years and, and make up that difference. So to me, I, I think there'll be a, a pause. 5%, I, even at 5%, I think there'll be a, a 30, 60, 90, 120 day kind of like, all right, is this real? And, and is it going to go back down next year? And, and the midterm elections come through and people are like, no, okay. I'm ready to go. The bigger concern I have, and I'm not trying to bounce around too much, Corey, is just knowing these these baby boomers like my dad and his friends. The business defines them as human beings a lot of times. And yes. one of my fears, and this may sound selfish a little bit, because I, I do obviously you know I provide for my family when we when we sell businesses, but we do try to really 
look and tell, listen, we're not all things to all people, but we do feel like you need professional representation. And just as importantly is you need to know to sell the business before things start declining. Cause the buyer and the lenders are always are fearful when things start declining. Where's the bottom. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And some of these boomers, 10,000 a day turning 70. I've literally had them tell me I'll never sell. I'm going to die at my desk uh, or I'm going to break the key off on the lock on the way out. And, and those that are close to some of these and those people that are dealing with business, right? Accountants and attorneys and financial advisors and bankers and lenders and all those people, like we owe it to them to say, you know what? If someone hasn't told you, that's not right. You, you, you've got an opportunity to, to create generational wealth. And I know that the business defines you, but you need to think about other people here. And maybe the new owner will let you stay until you pass along but why don't you take care of your business family and your family family by handing the reins over to someone that's you know maybe it's not half your age but but younger than you are and more capable of continuing to grow this company and, and that's my literally biggest fear over the next 14 years that this goes through 2034 10,000 people a day yep. 2034 turning 70 next you know 13 years i guess is that's my biggest fear is that's a big part of the, of the wealth in this country and we want to make sure that it stays by transferring that at the right time. Yeah, you raise a very interesting point, especially on the types of companies we're talking about here, is that how many entrepreneurs, it's, it's, you know, it's not like we often say, and you said earlier, and I say it all the time, you know, the, the business is their baby, right? But it's actually deeper than that because when, it's one thing to say it's your baby, then it's still separate from you. But when it becomes your identity, yes. right, which, yes. which it does for a lot of folks. And listen, I remember, I mean, I'll just share a personal experience. I, I, um, you know, I had built a very nice law firm, uh, had an office down on Wall Street, big corner office, looking at the Statue of Liberty. Uh, and uh, and it was um, and my, uh, had a combination of my partnership uh, on the being the verge of splitting up and then and and um, and um, 9-11. Uh, right. You know, happening. And we were down five blocks from the World Trade Center. Wow. Um, and, um, and and people don't often forget that actually the economy we were heading towards a recession even before 9-11 hit, right? It was a tough, starting to be a tough economy. And, um, and, and I looked and, and I intellectually understood that the smart business move would be to scale down some expenses, right? You know, money was getting tight. Deals weren't going on. Some of my corporate clients were running into trouble. You know, I, you know, I, you know, I saw that there would be a contraction, but you know what? I like, not only did I like having my nice corner, uh, you know, office with right. the view of natural liberty, but it was it, even deeper. It was part of my identity, right? I had become, I was this, you know, low middle class Brooklyn kid who had become this successful, you know, lawyer Respected. with a Wall Street office, right? you know, and, and so I, I had to do a bunch of internal, you know, work uh, to really get connected to how much I had tied my business to my identity uh, and then let that go in a way that had me make really smart business decisions, right? Took a smaller office, cut down expenses, rode that time out and came back and grew even stronger. Whereas if I didn't, you know, do that, I could have been, you know, crippled or out of business. So that identity thing is serious. Perfect, perfect example. It, it, it's so hard for us to kind of take a step back sometimes and look at the big picture because we do get those blinders on and, and just going through the challenges of life and work and, you walk in and, and your employees respect you and your customers respect you and you have a sense of pride and that, that, yeah, it, it, it's a tough thing to rip those hands off the, the, the reins. But, you know, but you alluded to, to a solution that I've actually used, which is, uh, you know, you said, Hey, maybe the buyer will like to stay around. Right. And for some folks, you know, it's, they want a place to go. They want to, you know, be identified, but I've, I've literally had deals that are about to fall apart that I was able to close by just guaranteeing the, the seller that they could keep their office for as long as they wanted. Right. That was Transition. it. It's, yeah, it's, 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 come it's, in it's hard because it. the buyer wants to, you know, make sure that people know that they're, they're the owner and, that, and that's why they want to be an entrepreneur. But oftentimes it's freeing for the seller to now have someone else that's actually responsible for everything. That, that burden that they bore for the last 15, 20, 25 years. Now yeah. when they leave it, whatever time they leave during the day, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't, you know, every, every day is a Friday now because, you know, that someone else got a responsibility and I'm really good at sales. So I'm just going to go out and do sales. I mean, so I've seen a lot of times where the transition is freeing for the, the seller. Again, they're working because they want to, not because they have to. They eliminate all the, the back office stuff that they kind of hated, but they're really good with client interactions or sales or whatever their 
their what they enjoyed, and now they're not working 80 hours a week. They're working 30 hours a week, uh, and it's 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 neat. It's really neat to see see those things happen. Now yeah. the seller also though has to still let go of the reins. <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> feel yeah. feel, feel good wire. being that's second a, in command. <laughs> 100, and that's that's sometimes difficult for folks, that's right. especially when they've grown something of it. You know, yeah. you know, you, you, you said two other you know two other things that uh, you know one is 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 I mean they both they both. You know, one's really true, and one um, gives me a little bit of a counter trend. To even if capital gains go up, you know, the one is that so often sellers wait until things are on the downturn, right? Because when things are going well, it's sort of like, well, it's on autopilot. I'm making money. You know, it's a, you know, I I, I saw um, a panel once with a bunch of billionaires, and I forget who said it, but uh, the guy had gone bankrupt and then built it, you know, back up to billion dollar business, and, they, and somebody asked him, you know, what what why did um, you know, why did you go bankrupt? And he said, I, I mistook a bull market for brilliance. And I thought that was one of, it's one of the best guys I've ever, That's ever great. heard. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, everybody, everybody's a genius when, you know, That's when the right. market's strong, right? Yeah. Covers up well, all the, Yeah, the funny of, thing about the market is say when, you, when, you, when the gentleman that, that shine your shoes is giving you stock tips, it's time to get out. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, but, you know, when, when the economy is good, whatever, you can be running inefficiently, you can be running whatever, and, you know, but, but, you know, it gets covered up. And then, you know, what happens is, right, they wait till things are turning bad. And then maybe the economy is going bad or the business is going down because they, they haven't, you know, adjusted. And now, um, you know, the buyers are afraid, that, you know, that that it's a drop in knife, as they say. Right. You know, so, yeah. So that's something, you know, that discipline to be able to, you know, take some chips off the table or get out when, you know. And listen, it's a, I'm not saying and I don't think you're saying um, you know, some people say, oh, you know, the market's, you know, phenomenal. You should sell now. No, it's not. Ju- it's a combination of life stage and what you want to do with your family and how much you want to be in your business. Now, you know, so I'm not saying it's the only factor. But if you are anywhere in the ballpark of considering, you know, in the next five years or, or whatever, seven, you know, and, you know, and, and you're at a place now where the capital gains rate stacks are great, you know, are great and the market's overheated and there's a huge amount of money, you should at least give it a serious look. You, you, you should, at a minimum, every business owner should know what their business is worth, even if they're not looking to sell. As part of your financial statement, um, you, you, you just you understand where you are. Your financial advisor can't paint a, a complete picture with, without that. It also, I've found, will, will kind of motivate business owners because, again, if your business is below $10 million, most people think it's worth a lot more. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize how valuable their business is when they're above that ten. So it's kind of a this this somewhere between five and ten million where it, it kind of switches and, and the business owner's like, well, it's really not that worth, worth that much. Like, oh yeah, now you're getting that much higher multiple. But, but if someone's get a you know some of the industries that have lower multiples and they look at the valuation, like you know, if I just work four more years, I could I could get the same amount. I'm like, well, yes and no. Um, right now you're paying you know ordinary income tax rates that are maxing out at 37 federal and, you know, your state, and then all the few to few social security and, and all that. When you sell the business, a lot of that will be long-term capital gains rates. So the after-tax proceeds may be more like five to seven years. And then the question is, do you want to work five to seven more years to make the same amount of money? Or do you want to have that all in one day? And right. if that doesn't motivate you, then you should continue to work. Or right. if you want to hit a certain goal, but here's the stake we put in the ground. And now you've got to determine it took you 15 years to get to, you know, $3 million. Do you really think you can double that in the next five? I mean, maybe you can, but those are things, I mean, again, get in the rational part of things. It took you 15 years to get to this point. Try to do a couple of things to tweak it. Try to maximize that value. Yes. hundred uh, percent, but have realistic goals on, on what you can really scale and grow a company because most people Including myself, you know, I had to surround myself with. with we're entrepreneurs, people. we're optimists. We're right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I think that's that's generally a good trait. But when it comes to valuation and growth, we, I think we much more often overestimate. You know, what we can do at least in, the, in a few years. You know, right. not yes. long, that's right. In a few years, than, than what we really can, because we're always so optimistic. Um, yeah, you know, that's that's a fascinating. And and the other thing that you know is true is you know in your example where hey you can. And realistically, after taxes, it'll take you more like five to seven years. There's also risk in that five to seven year period. Tremendous. Right? Economy goes right. down, valuations right. change. You get a competitor that it comes in, you you get a health issue, you get, you know, whatever. So you're also taking risk off the table. So for me, you know, if, 
you know, that, that has to be taken into account as well. Yeah. Most people are are not selling to retire. They're selling because they're burned out or they've hit that invisible ceiling and they're smart enough to realize it's time for someone else to take the next level. And that's also on, on a side, so another side note, that's the one time in your business career that you do need to be a little bit selfish. And I hear it so often, and it's not being mean by saying, hey, I've got my business family. It is your business family. And, and part of, of, of taking care of your business family is entrusting it that is put in the right hands. But yeah. this is the one time if you if you only do one transaction in your life, or even if you do two, or like my dad even doing four, each one of those times you need to really put yourself and your family in the front of everybody else because no one else in the world is putting you ahead of them. So this is the one time for you to be a little bit selfish and make sure that you you know again you do it on your terms and and, and, and your your timing. Yeah. And that last comment I'll make, and then I want to uh, solicit any last thoughts you have before I ask my final two questions. But, you know, you mentioned this sort of 13 year trend with the baby boomers and, you know, uh, and whatever. And I think, you know, that's just one of those factors that I do. Again, I'm not saying capital gains don't matter, but the fact that you've got, you know, like demographics are a factor. Right. And yes. although some of those folks are going to die you know, with their boot, you know, in their boots at the desk, whatever, um, you know, you do have just demographics such that there's got to be, you know, there's a chunk of business, a chunk of money, a chunk of value that's going to change hands in that next 13 years. And that's going to be a driving force, no matter what the tax rates are. Obviously, with lower rates, there'll be even a bigger force. But, you know, at some point that, you know, person who's in their late 50s or certainly 60s and 70s right now, you know, is going to get to the life stage where, you know, they're going to say, I've, I've had enough, I, you know, right. um, so that, you know, that's a demographic factor. All right. So before I ask my last two questions, um, any, any particular sort of trends, things that you're seeing, anything that you want to bring up that you think the, would, you know, be valuable to the audience uh, in terms I, of the I, or I, I've been in, in, intrigued by how um, the, the, Type of buyers is is, is increased. Um, some I think that was because of, of COVID and people being furloughed and, and let go and working from home. They just kind of say, you know what, I'm tired of this. And so it's, it's been interesting to see, like literally, the the buyer inquiries is, um, have almost doubled from January, February, March of, of 2020 uh, yeah. through you know mo- most recently. And and the the neat thing was the Great Recession of 09 created a, a younger entrepreneur uh, because before 09. Most of the buyers were, hey, my, my kids are in high school or college, and now I'm going to take this risk. Yep. And, and the, the people saw in 09 where uh, someone that thought they were semi-retired is going back to just, you know, be a greeter somewhere because, they, you know, their investments went to nothing. And it almost triggered like, you know what, I'm going to do this, risk, uh, this risky um, thing now when I'm younger in my life and my kids are young because if, 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 I, if I don't make it, I've got a longer runway to recover. So that's right. kind of an interesting to see. Right a really wider range of, of buyers and sellers. And even through the 09, we've been selling some of those people's, you know, millennial businesses um, for millions of dollars because they couldn't get a job and they're forced to be an entrepreneur. So that's kind of my neat thing. We're seeing those people now, uh, you know, uh, 10, 11, 12 years later, that started something out of necessity, grow it to be an actually pretty neat business. But now they're thinking like, okay, I, this is all I know, kind of like me, right? I'm in uncharted territory. Every time we open a new office, every time I hit a new milestone, it's uncharted territory for me because I never ran a division for a big, you know, company. Uh, but these young, you know, started something in their 20s. Now they're 33, 34, 35. And like, I need to hand this off to somebody else. That, that's been kind of a neat thing that I've seen recently um, with the, just the, the wider range and backgrounds of buyers and sellers. I love it. I love it. And then, uh, and listen, you know, we, we talk about serial entrepreneurs and, you know, and, some folks are like, well, what am I going to do if I sell my business? But I think nowadays, yeah, there are more folks who are saying, hey, you know, I'll go, do, I'll go do something else. Maybe I'll take some time off. Maybe I'll travel the world. Maybe I won't. Maybe I already have my next business idea. You know, whatever it is. Uh, that, yeah, That's what I tell them. You know, what do I do when I retire? Whatever you want for a right. short time period. And, and mo- most importantly, also with that identity thing is, is don't think about what you're leaving. Think about where you're going to, right? A yeah. lot of people are, are, looking, are kind of looking behind them. Say, no, no. Think about what you're going to. Are you going to give back to the church, the community? Are you going to be a consultant or a coach? Are you going to take some time off, like you said, and travel? Think forward because then it makes it a lot easier um, and not as emotional than thinking about what, what you're leaving. Think about where you're going to. Yeah, There's another yeah, chapter in your life. We have chapters all the time with kids, with homes, with all different types of things. This, this is a great chapter. You had a great run. You owned your business for 15, 25 years. That's a great chapter in your life. 
that you got a new chapter to look forward to. Yeah. 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 And creating that vision for what's next is, is absolutely so key. So before I ask you my final question, Jay, um, I'm sure people got a huge amount of value here. What's the, you know, if they want to find out about uh, more about you and, and, and Viking, where do they go? Our website is vikingmergers.com and that's B as in Victor, I K I N G. Um, we our Phone number 704-676-0940. We've got great advisors. Like I said, 20 of them are prior business owners. So I, I tell people all the time, our secret sauce is empathy. We know what it's like to go through the challenges uh, and successes of, of owning a business. And we, we, we like having conversations. We're, we're low uh, pressure. You know, there, there's, we, we always tell people, I'm, you know, I'm 47. Uh, I look 57. I act 67. I got five kids. <laughs> Um, I still got to work. So there's timing for me. I'm, we're ready when you're ready, uh, but start the conversation. It doesn't have to be us, but start the conversation, interview two or three firms, figure out who is your total team, right? Who's your CPA that can get you through? Who's your attorney? Are, are they pro deal? Just because they got it, you out of the, your divorce doesn't mean they can get you out of your business. <laughs> so, right. okay, make sure you got the right team around you so that when you, when you kind of do feel like you need to pull the trigger, you, it's easier to make that decision. You know, you got your financial advisor, they've got that painted picture like, okay, your business is worth this. Yes. If you did sell, you're good. Have your CPA, have that attorney, have the, the financial, um, you know, intermediary, the business intermediary, know who your, your team is so that when you're ready to go, they're ready to go. Love it. Love it. Folks. And all, all that contact information will be in the show notes. If you're driving or whatever, don't worry about it. You'll be able to look it up. Um, so Jay, my final question of the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom, from uh, you know, oppression for all people in the world to why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in 37 years, except for my clients. Um, That's right. uh, so what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your business life? Wow, you didn't prep me for that, Corey. I need. I've I said don't prep. That's all. I want to get the real. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I'm not very creative. I'm, the finance mind works with the creativity in mind. So <laughs> when I think of it, and I said it before, my goal is to be working because I want to, not because I have to. I think that's freeing. And, yeah. and until I get some of the the you know from the buyouts paid off, I think that that's still there. Um, I, I'd love to be able to continue to give back. I think we at Viking, one of our um, things that we do well, and we've created a great culture of giving back, um, not just okay. to the business community, but to what's important to us, whether it's our alma mater at Appalachian State or it's to our church or to the less, the, those less fortunate. I think we're all put on, on this earth to do that. So I don't know if that creates the, the, the freedom, but I think when you're giving back, you feel better about yourself, right? It's not always about who you're doing and, and you shouldn't do it selfishly to make yourself feel better, but it does. You do feel good when you give back to to the community and to people that, that need it. Right. And that, that's, I think, um, as best answer I can come up with. <laughs> no question about it. And I, you know, I, I, you know, I believe in those values as well. Uh, Jay, thank you so much. Thank for being you, Corey. The Quest podcast. Really appreciate it. That was fun. All right. Thank you for joining me on this episode of deal quest, where we help you understand how deal driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.